Welcome to the Peep Show Podcast. Your glance at sex, society, and culture. With Jesse and PJ Singh. Welcome to the eighth episode of the Peep Show Podcast. Before we begin, we wanted to let you all know that we will be in Las Vegas covering AVN this week, so please make sure to follow us on Twitter at peep underscore cast and Instagram at peep show underscore podcast for live updates and other fun stuff. But for this episode, we are really excited to bring to you two wonderful guests. We will be talking to Professor Julian Gill-Peterson about his upcoming book, Histories of the Transgender Child, and to CAM4 CAM coach and all-around CAM girl guru, Nikki Knight. But first, a glance at the news. OkCupid recently announced that they have changed their policy from allowing people to use screen names on their profiles to pushing real first names. There has been an intense outcry about this from many communities, most notably from the LGBTQ community, who have pointed out that using real names in connection with dating interests puts them at risk. This is particularly troubling given that historically, OkCupid has been the most queer-friendly dating platform. They were the first to allow folks to identify as non-binary, and they allowed for a wide range of sexual orientation and gender identities. One of the reasons that OkCupid has given for this change is that they believe people will be more authentic if they use their real names. As a member of a community where I know very few people's real names and yet do in fact have real relationships, I find this rather odd. In a piece for Gizmodo titled, OkCupid's New Real Name Policy is Dumb, journalist Kate Conger reports that the company has backpedaled a bit, saying in a tweet, quote, you do not need to use your government name or even your full first name. Use the name, nickname, or initials you'd like your date to call you on OkCupid, end quote. The company further explains a name will be considered valid as long as it is two letters long and does not contain numbers, symbols, or emojis. There is also a list of banned words you cannot use. An OkCupid spokesperson explained, We encourage users who do not feel comfortable to use a nickname or their initials. So, It does seem that OkCupid is trying to make some concessions here, but I agree with you that the underlying premise of this decision that people behave in a way that's somehow more real or more authentic if they associate their profiles with a real name or a name that they use in other contexts is pretty problematic. Yeah, intuitively, it doesn't even seem right to me. <laughs> like, I think that there's a certain freedom in using a pseudonym that allows you to maybe represent yourself in ways uh, or your interest in ways that you wouldn't necessarily do if the things that you say is going to be pushed back to people outside of the context of that dating website. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, OkCupid, they made clear in this article, they don't index your profile on Google but, That's new, though, actually. Yeah, they or, just stopped indexing it. But still, it's not going to be super hard for somebody who's trying to find you if you have a real name or name that you commonly use listed on the site. I mean, I think what's particularly concerning here is that they ask for a ton of personal information. Yeah, more on, than other websites. Yeah, far more than other dating websites like Tinder or Bumble or whatever. Sure. Political affiliations and drug history and sexual, sexual preferences pra- yeah, exactly. and practices. And-, and I mean, part of it is that there are those like user generated questions that allow for like a really, really wide range of information to be shared. So you have a ton of information then on their site. But if you're using 
your real name or a nickname that you commonly use, then it's going to be really easy for someone in your area to come along and search for you on the platform mm-hmm. and to dig up that information. And my sense is that's going to make users actually far less comfortable. Yeah, that's my thought too, is if I have to use my real first name or a nickname of my real first name, then I'm going to be far less likely to answer those questions uh, totally truthfully. And <laughs> I mean, on a personal note, you and I met on OkCupid. And part of the reason that we met is because we were so algorithmically matched. And I don't know that those sorts of things would have happened if you aren't comfortable answering all of those questions. Right. And I mean, that is what distinguishes OkCupid from other sites. This is, in fact, an iteration of the longstanding, quote unquote, NIM wars on the internet. Back in the 90s, it was far more common practice for people to use a variety of pseudonyms on platforms. Google and Facebook came along Mm -hmm. and changed that and really encouraged the use of real names, kind of suggesting that it would foster accountability. And to some degree, that probably is true. Um, Yeah, when you're talking about trolling or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And so it's quite possible that people might, you know, be less likely to troll. People in particular, women might feel safer in the sense that uh, it feels more like you're talking to, you know, a, a real person that you have some you know, identifiable information about. Sure. Of course, that could just be, (laughs) you know, made up. Right. Well, yeah, but that actually points to another thing that I find really strange about this is what are they actually trying to accomplish with this? It seems to me like one of the things that they're trying to accomplish is conformity with the other platforms and norms of the other platforms like Tinder and Bumble. And if now they're backpedaling and saying, we actually don't care if you use your legal name, you can use a nickname, you can use initials. It actually doesn't even have any meaning. I think there's maybe two possible reasons why they might want to do this. One is kind of straightforward. Bumble just announced that they're doing Instagram integration. Mm -hmm. uh, Tinder has done Instagram integration for a long time. It may be the case that if OkCupid wants to integrate with sites like Facebook, they might need to have this real name policy in place first yeah mm-hmm. so that yeah. um they don't get accused which that's a terrible idea <laughs> yeah oh, I, I i hate that exactly that seems completely problematic to me because it seems like what all of these sites seem to believe is that we all want all of our social networks to be collapsed into a single network that includes everyone we know and in every context that we know them and I can see so many reasons for so many different people of different communities that wouldn't want that to be the case. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I don't think any of us really would want our parents to like have access to our dating profiles. Sure. You know, or our kids or, (laughs) you know, among all sorts of other, you know, Mm -hmm. issues you could imagine. But that seems to be like the most immediate. And that's probably particularly acute for queer kids or, you know, trans kids or, right. But the other reason I think that might motivate them in doing this is that it creates a sort of illusion of safety or security for users and maybe makes them feel like they know about the person on the other end of the profile or or have some information Mm -hmm. when in point of fact it's not actually doing (laughs) anything concrete to make 
Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. these interactions more secure. I mean, it's not like they're verifying driver's licenses sure, or, right. or, or anything, mm-hmm. but maybe it creates an illusion of yeah. um, safety or security that they think is important or valuable in attracting users. I think that in practice, they should not be doing this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the takeaway I have. We're here today with Julian Gill-Peterson, who's going to talk to us about his current research. He's an assistant professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh with a secondary appointment in gender, sexuality, and women's studies. He holds a PhD in American studies from Rutgers University. Welcome. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to chatting. Thank you. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on today. Can you give us kind of a broad overview of the research that you've been doing? Yeah, so I'm just sort of coming to the end of a book project that at its broadest really is sort of a history of transgender children in the United States. I've sort of worked through the the medical archive of trans medicine over the course of the 20th century to try and uncover the sorts of experiences, identities, uh, and medical discourses that took hold of, of trans children from really the opening of the 20th century till about 1980. The trans sign, and this is something we think about a lot, but you know, to be perfectly honest, I'm like totally unaware of this history. Yeah, and it's, I, I was thinking about that as you were talking too, because I remember, you know, when our son came out and when I went to his middle school to advocate for him there, him being the first trans student that ever was out at the school, there is kind of uh, this sense that you get with this generation that like, this is something new and people are just learning how to deal with it. And I feel like they've rapidly learned to deal with it. Like, very quickly, but still with this idea that this is something that's new that we all have to learn and not having a sense that there's a very long history that preceded this. It's a fascinating issue. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I myself stumbled into the work, not expecting there to be such a long and rich history. It was really through a kind of trial and error in archives that had been marked as trans history archives because of previous historians, especially work with medical records. But you know, it's it's maybe on the one hand not surprising, right, that trans people's history in general has been very much erased, where yeah. they're actively erased, you know, by yeah. trans exclusionary forces or, yeah. you know, through forms of invisibility because dif- the identities and, and categories and taxonomies we have today are really quite different than the ones that circulated 30, 40, 50, 60, and then especially 70, 80, 90 years ago. Yeah. So right. part of it is also kind of confronting how different some of these categories like transgender and childhood look uh, when we put them in a different historical context. So yeah. the surprise is sort of of this history, I think, kind of go on and on and on. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. One of the things when I was looking over your project that you're working on is you were talking a little bit about the history and how this went along in the 20th century, but also you... You mentioned that the construction of the idea of gender only came about in the mid-50s, and that was actually really shocking to me. Shocking because I actually used to teach women and gender studies and feminist philosophy, and I spent so much time with my students talking about the difference between sex and gender without ever considering (laughs) that that was uh, a relatively new concept. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Uh, And... You know, I'm not the only person that's sort of revisiting 
where does gender itself come from? And and, and in that sense, you know, gender really, really, really specifically the word gender um, mm-hmm. in the English language, in the context that we understand it today, you know, where it has to do with someone's sense of their self, how they present themselves to the world. Uh, and now we sort of use the term gender identity that didn't even quite come about maybe until the 60s or the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been a fascinating, you know, most I, I used to teach this way too, you know, gender is something that feminists <laughs> brought right. into the conversation, <laughs> right. which is true. Um, but interestingly enough, the distinction between sex and gender in the way we have it today is coined by a psychiatrist in the 60s. And even actually 70s feminists take that distinction from psychiatry, except they completely rework the context. Well, right. yeah, we were talking about that today because when we were talking about this, I was saying, yes, but I read A Second Sex where Simone de Beauvoir mm. starts and she says, you know, one is not born but made a woman. And I think we anachronistically like read that to mean that she's mm. like making this distinction between sex and gender. And when she's saying, you know, you're not born a woman, but you're made right. one. Even though but- she's not specifically using that language of gender, mm-hmm. we sort of... Uh, yeah, I do think we start a lot yeah. of the, those conversations with Simone de Beauvoir. Yeah, right. absolutely. I mean, the interesting sort of distinction then with the kind of history I wanted to talk about prior to the emergence of gender as a category that was being used um, first in medicine and, and psychology, the, the term sex was supposed to encompass everything. And sure. so yeah. by about 1950, I mean, sex is just this ridiculous category in biology and in medicine. It means so many different things, right? It means mm-hmm. a certain fledgling sense of chromosomes were coming into being. It meant especially hormones and the endocrine yeah. system mostly. But it also meant psychology and one sense of self and how they present themselves in the world. And uh, gender really, I, I argue... A couple of things. One, it was really created out of experiments on children's bodies. Uh, wow. And yeah, it's it's. Tell this, us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's this really mostly gruesome history at Johns Hopkins Hospital, in particular in Baltimore. And John Money, who's a pretty well-known sexologist, psychologist, uh, was in charge of the medical program for intersex children at the hospital, and then as well trans children and adults. Uh, mm-hmm. And money really is the person who famously created this theory that uh, social gender a child is raised in, they're more or less going to come to identify with as long as there's nothing that would contradict that. So very like constructionist. Kind of extreme, like to the extreme, right? So so money was really in favor of genital surgeries uh, on intersex children to create the most normative possible looking body. I see. And then Mm -hmm. argued Mm -hmm. that, you know, if parents simply raise their children as whichever sex the doctor decided was the most reasonably, you know, manufactured sex, then that would all work out. And their gender identity would grow out of this sort of really... So money money basically calls gender identity uh, the same as your first language, that there's this sort of developmentally sensitive moment that he changes the age constantly. But, you know, let's say <laughs> before age yeah. one and a half, right, where you can kind of be programmed with this cultural social information that tells you who you are that then takes on a kind of ineradicable biological reality. Uh, and famously, money turns out to be, you know, completely wrong. I mean, many of the mm-hmm. children that he 
elects and chooses a sex for when they're infants or right. very young children yeah. without any input don't grow up to to feel themselves to be the gender that he had assigned so gender really in this context was a kind of medical reading device. that a lot of the sorry i don't mean yeah, to interrupt yeah, you yeah. but i remember reading some of these stories and most mm. of those kids weren't even told that any of this happened no. right no it's a really yeah. i mean it's a brutal chapter in medical ethics and medical history although one that especially in the case of intersex medicine has changed much less than we might think actually really mm. in, in contradistinction to trans medicine which has radically changed over the last 20 or 30 years yeah um but the reason that i talk about intersex children in this book about trans childhood right <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, is that is for two reasons one the invention of gender becomes so important right so the idea that you form a gender identity by a certain age yeah becomes basically the motivating factor of trans medicine in in you know, in the post-war era, the idea of binary transition, that you have to transition from one recognizable gender to the other, right? Right. really didn't make a lot of sense until you had that category, right? Mm -hmm. But the other interesting, interesting, yeah, and the other interesting flip side is prior to the invention of gender as a category, um, intersex, that category, and the sorts of meanings that circulated around it were actually a very important way that a lot of trans people explained and accounted for themselves to doctors. Okay. And that's because American doctors famously were very, very slow and reluctant to offer trans people medical care of any kind. So, yeah. you know, we, we know a lot more now about particularly like Germany in the 1920s, where you had uh, Magnus Hirschfeld and other sexologists and doctors providing uh, different forms of transition to trans people uh, in in that, especially in Berlin, even prior to the availability of hormones. Um, but American doctors never wanted to do that. They constantly would shut down any attempts of trans people to access care. And so intersex uh, How became... How hormones been available? I guess longer than most people well they were definitely not very reliable (laughs) early on took a long time to be able to synthesize them artificially Mm. so early on what what you would do is actually people would harvest uh hormones from animals Mm. uh, and from whether i didn't know that yeah internal tissues and you could sort of create these preparations that people would get injected with to be honest, they didn't really do very much. They're okay. extremely diluted in quality or just variable right, yeah. in quality. But synthetic hormones really come into existence in the 1930s and then especially during the war in the 40s. Wow. So testosterone, estrogen, mm-hmm. you know, the ones that we're most familiar with, but a right. whole host of other ones really start to become available in, in the late 1930s, definitely in the 40s and the 50s is this big heyday. So you really see actually wow. the idea of gender is like the psychological idea, right? But it's actually very much underwritten uh, in these big hospitals by the science of hormones and a lot of pretty pretty unethical experimentation and of course children who don't have the ability to consent to medical treatment sometimes can't understand what's going on or don't even speak yet in the case of infants uh, really were the primary bodies that were being experimented on for really about 30 or 40 years who were these children? I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, was it parents that were bringing the the kids to these hospitals? And what was the motivation for that? Yeah, it's really fascinating, right? I mean, 
the 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 story of the intersex children that come to hospitals like Hopkins, right, is is pretty distinct from the stories of trans children. And mm-hmm. despite what I just said, that you know, trans folks would often use intersex language to present themselves, there really wasn't an overlap amongst the children. So there weren't yeah. a bunch of trans children being diagnosed as intersex. In fact, doctors would just ignore most people who tried to claim they were intersex. Okay. In any case, children didn't seem to be doing that in yeah. that time yeah. period. But in terms of intersex children. It depends, you know, Hopkins got this reputation for being a place where anyone who was categorized as abnormal in their sexuality could go to be seen. Okay. And so it depends, you know, in a lot of cases, it seems that intersex children really grew up with a wide degree of tolerance and affirmation from their families. And sometimes it wasn't until puberty and changes Mm -hmm. in the physical body creating a more difficult situation to live as whatever social sure. identity they had yeah. chosen and right. whatever gender identity to use a, an acronistic right. term they had chosen, right? Yeah. Kind of came into question. That was often the prompt. Uh, yeah. And then sometimes parents' anxieties uh, and, and yeah. an inability to, to know what to do, right, would bring them in. But it's really in the 50s when you have this invention of gender that a lot more anxiety gets placed on children's gender identity and on their oh, bodies. Yeah. So. If, if before there was a little bit more variability, right? Yeah. And also doctors just mm-hmm. didn't, you know, have as much prestige in the United States. By the 50s, there's really this kind of impulse that the the sex of a baby at birth is very important because their gender identity depends on it. And uh, money really argues that if that's not all straightened out in the most extreme literal sense, yeah. then it will create some sort of crisis because right. it's abnormal. Isn't this around the same time that toy manufacturers mm. were? I mean, this uh, this is maybe like a far afield, but it seems like in the histories that I've heard of like children's toys too, that there became around the 50s, like a pretty intense like gendering of toys that didn't exist prior to that. But it seems like there's maybe a collective anxiety at this time. Absolutely. That right. is manifested in a lot of different ways of raising children. Absolutely, right. And the way that children become in quite a literal sense, poster childs in the Cold War as well for the sorts of capitalist heteronormative Mm -hmm. values that the United States wants to project onto the world at the same time that communism is being associated with, you know, homosexuality or effeminacy in men, right? So there is this sort of kind of cisgender heteronormative project in the 50s. And I think you can absolutely read the invention of gender really as a sort of medical side of that. And it's all about the kind of really the sort of white innocent child in whose name this massive state apparatus and medical apparatus is going to come into formation, you know, and and really take charge of of how people, yeah, play with toys, you know. Toys were at the heart of the therapy that these kinds of doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists were we're using uh, in, this, yeah. in this time period. Yeah, I just a quick Google search tells mm. me that Barbie was invented in uh, 1959. Yes, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's really uh, interesting. Yeah, actually. you know, can, yeah. it does, seems like that's uh, more than a coincidence that you would yeah. have, you know, mm. sort of the iconic, uh, you know, sort of feminine gendered toy mm. uh, right. emerging at that, you know, uh, simultaneously yeah. with um, mm. this crystallizing of this idea of uh, gender as a concept. Right. Well, and part of what that tells us, right, is that it's one of the the sort of 
most problematic effects of medicalizing gender and medicalizing sex, yeah. medicalizing trans people, because interestingly enough, and it was very hard to find archival historical evidence of what trans childhood was like, say, in the 1920s or 30s. Yeah. But I did find some, right? And what was quite interesting there, and the only reason I know this is because much, much later on in their lives, these folks did end up going to see doctors maybe in the 50s or the 60s. Yeah. But by then, it's not because they didn't realize they were trans until they were adults. They had already lived out and openly since often the age of 12, 13, 14. Yeah. With mm-hmm. the complete acceptance of their families and local communities. And I'm talking about including rural states in the deep south, in the Midwest. Wow. Uh, but the reason why counterintuitively that actually makes a lot of sense is because there wasn't a pervasive medical discourse saying that everyone needed to be cisgendered in a certain way and so in that sense the social reality of a trans boy being a boy or a trans girl being a girl in in an interesting way had a little bit more capacious you know breathing room than it would come to in the post-war era and that's one of the reasons why in my work I try to look before the 1950s and after because what came Mm -hmm. after the 50s has really dominated our imagination about what being transgender means and that's just a very very narrow medical concept uh, that actually really erases a lot of what has happened since the 50s and has happening today but Mm -hmm. also especially if you go back before that time period you see the sort of truth that trans people don't don't need medicine to know who they are right and that they have lived you know beyond the medical model and continue to live beyond the medical model right um, in ways that those medical discourses do not acknowledge yeah it's interesting i've read a lot of narratives of trans people who have said that they actually had to like teach themselves to talk about their identity in a way that the medical establishment would then like take it seriously Mm. even if it was kind of a construction and kind of a fiction you know so Mm. for example um telling stories about i knew since i was five years old when maybe that's not particularly true or it's an overstatement in some ways the highest stakes are for trans children because of a sort of much longer standing and much broader discourse of child development that, you know, it's really hard to think of children without thinking about them developmentally. I mean, it's almost yeah. impossible mm-hmm. because we understand children to be emblems of development, unfinished You know, we we expect that we can learn where gender comes from or where Mm -hmm. transgender comes from just by watching trans children or studying them. And the problem with that, of course, is that it it really interferes with recognizing who they say they are and what they already know about themselves. And this is a, a problem that I try to trace back really over a whole century, where instead of listening to trans children's own knowledge about themselves, their own desires, how they talk about who they are, and just taking their gender identities seriously, mm-hmm. doctors have only been interested in studying them to try and explain something else, right? Where oh, everyone's yeah. gender comes from, or where trans people's sense of self comes from. And that can have, you know, both in theory, affirmative, maybe implications, but it's often had really terrible implications that if we could yeah. find an etiology for how transgender people develop, then we could try to prevent their development, right? I mean, that right. was a huge, huge industry in the 60s. And so, I, you know, one of the big takeaways for me from this research is that the sort of special burden that trans children bear is that they're supposed to be an explanation for trans people in general yeah because they're searching for like an acceptable 
explanation or (laughs) definition Mm. of who they they say that they are. And cis people are never asked to account for their own identity like that. How far back does uh, your research go? I mean, I'm thinking like, you know, in the early 1900s, right? Like Freud and like at the very beginning of psychoanalysis, Mm. there was certainly a lot of discussion of childhood development in a way that was very sexed, I guess. Uh, I'm just kind of curious, do you reach back that far? Yeah, that's actually precisely where I pick up and, and for some of those reasons, right? I mean, so, you know, one of the things that we take for granted today that's just actually incredibly surprisingly historically recent is the separation of sex from gender and sexuality, right? That yeah. actually for for most of the past century, those distinctions don't really make a lot of sense. Um, and so Freud, for instance, is very much interested in what then was called inversion, Right. Inversion right. that which is interestingly that, you know, the sort of classic definition of inversion is um, a woman's soul trapped in a man's body or or a man's brain trapped in a woman's body, which sounds eerily similar wow. to <laughs> one dominant narrative that circulates around trans experience, though certainly it's not a representative narrative. And at that time, inversion might have meant what we would today think of as a gay or lesbian person, or it might have meant what today we would think of as a trans person. And it's really interesting that it's so, that is so different, right? It's actually really Mm -hmm. anathema to some of the sort of identity politics that, you know, being litigated today or have been litigated as border wars or, you know, right. Trans exclusionary feminism, et cetera. Um, But what sort of unifies that moment and makes it important to me is actually just about the way that development and sex were understood in general. And there was this sort of broad agreement by science that no one was really a man or a woman, but that in reality, every organism was really just sort of a mix of masculinity and femininity, and typically one was predominant. Mm -hmm. And so that would be the sex that you would ascribe, but that every uh, animal and every person carried latently the other sex within them. And so that really creates a pretty different landscape. So when it comes to very early hormones and surgeries, Mm -hmm. right, the actual justification was in some interesting ways almost easier to make because if you take it to be scientifically true that no one is really a binary sex, then it's not so remarkable that you might want to change parts of how your body mm-hmm. is seen by the world, right? It's almost then like much more of a continuum and you want to just mm-hmm. move to one side or the other. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> yeah. Right. So, and we've really lost that sense. But yeah. on the flip side, the downside to that way of thinking, that was sort of a discourse that was called natural bisexuality. And Freud uses that phrase. Um, sure. But it's a very different sense than what bisexuality means today. Right, right. Yeah. But but within that is this kind of sense that um, sex is plastic, right? So plasticity, the plasticity of the body and the mind is sort of the central feature to the way that psychoanalysis and then endocrinology and psychiatry take hold of the body because they come mm. all come to think of the body as something that is not rigid and static, but can be actually changed over time and naturally yeah. changes as it grows. And that's why children actually become the most important objects of research because children are framed um, as as the most plastic, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. So for that reason, it becomes a lot easier to locate 
trans folks and children in that time period through that lens of plasticity. Interestingly, these are not new concepts. However, they have a, a pretty disturbing history in and of themselves in that in that early 20th century moment, they were explicitly eugenic and racist scientific mm. projects. Tell us more yeah. about that. Yeah, so this sort of sense of, of plasticity, right, the sense of malleability, uh, openness to change and to taking on different forms, mm-hmm. right? What ends up happening is that that concept gets racialized as a sort of property that belongs to white bodies in the greatest Mm. abundance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So people of color, but especially African-Americans in the United States are, are basically racialized as less plastic. Uh, And this is goes way beyond uh, hormones, way beyond trans medicine. Trans medicine is not the place that this idea comes about. It's just affected by it. And that that's the only way to kind of try and manage that paradox. And you know, to be honest, it doesn't resolve it, right? So it just creates constant problems of exclusion. Yeah. So what ends up happening in the 1960s is as more and more white trans children are being diagnosed and uh, increasingly allowed into clinics and are and are mm-hmm. getting much more access to hormones in particular than they'd ever had before, you see a huge differentiation in black trans children in particular are being willfully, willfully misdiagnosed as schizophrenic or even as like clinical homosexuals, which is to say just a total rejection of what, what they're saying about themselves, how they're presenting themselves in order to completely reject them from this new medical model. You know, the implicit idea is that there's something about black bodies that is not plastic enough to be worthy of medical care. It gives us a different set of coordinates to think about this new renewed excitement, right, in plasticity today, right? Yeah. Who is who is considered plastic? Right. Whose brain, you know, right. whose fluidity, right? And and right. who is allowed to be seen as fluid? I think it's exciting. I mean, I'm very excited what do you, that that is What do that you make happening. of the like disparity in violence mm-hmm. against trans people because it seems mm-hmm. it seems to me just from reading the, you know, mm-hmm. looking at the stories and reading the news that trans people of color are targeted at much higher rates. Um yeah. I mean, it, do you think that that's connected to definitely right? I mean, I, you know, there there are a couple intersecting histories here, right? I mean, but it's true that the the rate of violence against Black trans women and mm-hmm. uh, Latina trans women is probably the single highest vector of violence experienced by any group of people, right? Uh, in the United States. And it seems to me that, you know, there are other histories of racism and misogyny that are very, very long and very old that are coming into play. If anything, maybe they get intensified, right? By the way, the medical model also has a racial logic baked into it. So black trans women and Latina trans women have had to fight harder to justify themselves, right? Even within, you know, famously coming out of Stonewall, even with gay and lesbian activists, right? right? They were the most dismissed immediately. And so some of that is anti-blackness. Some of that is institutional racism. It seems to me what happens is the intersection there, right? With some of these other um, racial logics of gender uh, sort of maybe intensify or increase that that structural vulnerability. I'm also curious about how this is tied into 
particularly like the hypersexualization mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. both black men and women mm-hmm. in different ways. Like yeah. with black men, I think it often manifests as like uh, anxiety that becomes very evident in all of the interest in race play that exists within sex, sex work. work. Yeah. Um, that there is clearly a lot of anxiety on the part of white, white men, men who... <laughs> overwhelmingly in this country are you know the people who have the money and interest in paying for sex work (laughs) you know there is a lot of anxiety uh when it comes to black men and their supposed virileness and penis size and these other things and on the other end there's a hypersexualization of of black women as well and i wonder if that isn't in some way tied to you know this notion that you're talking about from a century ago where we kind of pushed black people out into either end of the binary claiming that they were less plastic and mm. therefore they would have to be more binarized or whatever the <laughs> what's the word for that i don't know yeah well it's a sort of reductionist yeah. right framework no i think you're i think you're you're right about that it's it's something that folks in particularly in black trans studies, which is a sort of burgeoning field, have named, for example, as the sort of the problem, right, is that hyper visibility, we tend to think visibility brings progress, but visibility can also ironically bring a charge of non-existence uh, or social death or no value to someone's personhood, total denial of personhood. And that really is what we're seeing, right? Um, we, We tend to celebrate the rise in trans visibility that we've seen over the last 10 years, but for, for black trans women, and and Mm. Latinx trans people, right? I mean, that for trans people of color in general, that rise in visibility has, it seems, at least correlated to, if not had some sort of causal relationship to an increase in violence and vulnerability to violence. Yeah. This was all really interesting. Is there any other things that you think that we should, like, take away? Yeah, I mean, I think, think, you know, the the sort of basic point that I want to make in bringing this book out into the world is, is really just to insist that trans children have a history, right? Clearly, it's embedded in these much bigger discussions that we've been having. But I think, you know, for me, my motivation, at least, is that I think it really matters to be able, in the midst of all the different ways that trans children are being used as pawns in political struggles, Mm -hmm. you know, have to fight just to to be recognized at school or, you know, in in gender segregated associations to get access to Mm -hmm. healthcare, which is still a huge barrier, uh, that it really makes a difference to be able to stand up in the public and point to a history, right? And so much of what is passing for common sense knowledge right now about trans kids, even from very inclusive progressive voices, you know, it it really seems to just double down on this idea that this is all brand new. We don't know what's Mm -hmm. really happening. So therefore we can really scrutinize the choices that trans kids and their families make. When really I I would want to to say to that, no, this isn't new. (laughs) We have a long and rich history. Trans children have been very dynamic players in even in the construction of this medical discourse that tries to silence them and so i think it i think that's actually in part like my motivation for asking about the history of hormones my child is on hormones uh but that was a very like long process i don't know when we were going through this the message that we were getting was we don't actually know Mm. there's not a history Mm. of kids this young starting hormones uh we don't know what the outcome is going to be and so i don't i can't I feel like we almost felt like we were making those decisions like in a vacuum, yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, and 
nobody told us that actually you're not making it in a vacuum. Mm. There actually is like people throughout mm. the history of the last hundred years who have gone through these sorts of things. And that's interesting. Yeah, I think it makes a huge difference, right? I mean, yeah, I can only speak as a sort of historian. But of course, yeah. those doctors, I mean, I, I believe that they sincerely say that, right? Right. Um, but it's totally facetious. Right. Yeah. There's a yeah. long history, but of course, yeah, the, I didn't get the sense that they, you know, thought they were deceiving us. They just right. said, we, no, we, but just, I, we don't but know. For them, this is new for but us. But for them, they need, it, they need whatever longitudinal studies. Exactly. Yeah. It is. Yeah. When they say that they, what they mean is this exact formulation of hormones <laughs> yep. that yeah. was studied through this exact um, methodological process, right. because that's the only knowledge that you know, within a medical context is considered valid. And yeah. so thus, all other, you know, <laughs> kinds of knowledge, all other information is simply bracketed out of those conversations. Yeah. And, you yeah. know. But as parents, like when we were going through that, there was a sense in which, you know, we thought, well, we have to make a decision based on something else besides mm. like medicine that like, it, you know, it's a social decision. It's a something about identity. It's also just something about, situated knowledge and believing yes. your kids yeah. story yep. and right. like yeah just having a, yeah. having faith in somebody's own reported experience right which is such a better source i mean <laughs> yeah. to be perfectly honest <laughs> right. right that's my biggest frustration is that and particularly the way that the the model of binary transition has only become more and more central right mm-hmm. to trans medicine over the last 20 30 years it's extremely central to the way that despite this sort of generally accepted yeah. idea that children are sort of a little gender fluid anyways yeah there's still the sense that especially around you know puberty blockers and then horm- sure. you know yeah. other hormone therapies that it's the some sort of threshold that once crossed can never be taken back and that's yeah. just such a poor reading of what the human body is and what gender is right and that we think but again it's that sort of idea at the bottom that at the end of childhood that gender is sorted out right and and that's just it's it's outrageous Mm -hmm. that's not true for (laughs) cis people it's not true that you get to adulthood and you never again think about your gender right Right. whatever your gender may be it's not you know it's not true for trans folks either so i think that's a really unfortunate uh, consequence of where the the discourse has gotten to you know and there are some longitudinal studies now you know thankfully yeah um, but the sort of basic notion that gender needs to be settled by the time let's say at least puberty is over i think is really unfortunate uh, and also interestingly not consistent with the history of the last hundred years. So for people who are interested in your work, where could they find your book? When is that coming out? Yeah. So academia moves slowly and uh, (laughs) I can, I can, promise that the book will be out in the world probably uh in in the fall of 2018 so okay. still a little ways away um yeah. but i for folks who are interested um uh, i'm i'm on twitter at gp julian j-u-l-i-a-n um and if you google me you'll find my my academic coordinates at the university of pittsburgh where there's more information about some of the other work that i've published in this area so far great yeah so that sounds great yeah Thanks. and we'll certainly uh tweet and uh, <laughs> link to all of that yep and link to this uh, podcast when your book comes out as well so thanks for joining us we really appreciated having you here and having this conversation thank yeah. you so much for inviting me it's been wonderful <laughs> having a chance to talk
Nikki Knight is the head coach for Cam4.com and all-around Cam Girl guru. She wrote and developed the performer training area on Cam4 and has filled it with training articles, videos, and experience as a performer herself. Nikki has been featured in Forbes, Cosmopolitan, and the show Real Future that is hosted on Fusion Network. You can join her free live coaching every Wednesday on cam4.com backslash cam4coach underscore en. So thanks, Nikki, for coming and talking to us today. Thank you for inviting me. We totally remember meeting you both at uh, XBiz in Miami and then also at Exotica in Chicago. So we've been, you know, looking for a reason to talk to you again. So we're glad you're here. You are a cam girl coach. And I think you're one of the first ones or the first one. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Of course, I would love to say that I'm the first, but I am not. Cam4 is actually, they're the first company to really bring coaching to the industry. It was actually the French team they were really the first ones that started coaching and it was a group of guys and they didn't, it wasn't like my coaching now. Like it wasn't like live coaching sessions. They started doing it and they, they would coach some performers to then like do a live coaching show, mm-hmm. but uh, they were mostly behind the scenes and they would talk in chat and they were really available to the performers. And like when I say built a relationship with them and built a team with them and just, that whole region just blossomed. And because of that success, Cam4 looked at it and was like, well, we need to expand on this. Like we, we really need to capitalize on this. Yeah. I honestly feel like it's out of a fairy tale that I just happened to, go, to get this opportunity because it really did fall in my lap. Yeah. What uh, happened? How did you end up doing that? I feel so bad when some people are like, well, how did you start to do this? I would like this as a career path. I almost feel like such a jerk. My sister was a bartender uh-huh. and the HR woman's husband was a regular at my sister's bar and cam four was looking for a head coach for a year or so. Anyways, this gentleman, the HR lady of cam four's husband asked my sister if she'd be interested because she's very personable. She's an actress and you know, she was his favorite bartender <laughs> and like, you know what? You need to talk to my sister. And she kind of hooked it up. I mean, before camming, I, again, I've been a makeup artist for 15 years and camming is so dear to me because at a point in my life when I wanted the flexibility and I needed a change in my life, it afforded me that so I could do my art, I could do my makeup. And then I embarked on this amazing camming and it just, it was just such a a blessing in my life. So Mm -hmm. um, as a makeup artist, I was a, a teacher and a trainer, a brand representative. I wrote makeup curriculums. So I had that experience. Yeah. And then I had the experience of being a webcam model for about three years at the time. My entire everything had been leading up to kind of this moment and it just felt like such a perfect fit and it's is kind of fairy tale like so I'm Yeah, I mean that sounds really coincidental. So they <laughs> yeah, approached it's... your uh sister and then turns out that you'd already been working in the industry for three years? Basically, yeah. And I mean I had so much experience as a teacher already. Yeah. They just went hand in hand. And I remember my sister, she messaged me. She's like, I have a job opportunity for you, but I don't know if I want to tell you it's, it's porn. (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) I literally got offline naked to take this call. Like I'm literally, (laughs) what the fuck is the problem? Like it's fine. (laughs) And she's like, well, you know, what if it's, what if it's human trafficking and blah, blah. I'm like, okay, no. Um, and <laughs> she you know, didn't know that you were camming. 
she knew that I was camming, but she's still my sister. And like, right. she, she didn't fully understand, you know, it would be like some big company because she knew that I was camming, but she knew that as all cam models have this wonderful safety that I was at my home. Right. Knew where yeah. I was. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it was this big company that she, so yeah. she was, and then I was like, well, come on, not everything can be fake. Turns out it was very real. <laughs> Oh. I like your reasoning. Not everything can be fake. It's not all a yeah. fraud. Something yeah. has to be true. Well, it something does or else none of the fraud would work. Right. So that's, that's so true. That's <laughs> very good logic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting story. You know, I think about my own life and I was talking to a cam friend of mine uh, the other day and we were talking about the same thing, how our past careers, even if they're not the same, have totally led us into doing the sort of work that we do and being able to do it well. Like there's so many transferable yeah. skills. I was just about to say that word, transferable skills. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you were the only other person who said that because for my interview, I was like, these are my transferable skills on this little sheet. And I was like, so business about it. I'm like, mm. yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. Because camp is a job. Like, it's not just about the sex. There's branding, there's marketing, there's promoting, there's video editing, there's networking. Like, just there's so much to it that every other thing actually helps you out like any experience you have doing anything yeah I think you're right to say that it's not just about the sex that there's all these other things the marketing and the branding and all of that but uh, like the thing that I found to be the most interesting is that the sex isn't even all about the sex yeah and I think that people from outside of the sex industry have a really hard time believing that like the old thing escorts say oh yeah no most guys just pay me to listen to them talk they just want to talk and everyone's like yeah sure <laughs> it's actually the truth it's like, actually true <laughs> yeah let's let's talk a little bit about that so as a coach then uh one of the things that you do have to talk i'm assuming that what you talk to a lot of like future cam models or new cam models about is what sort of things like clients and customers are looking for in camming so what do you tell them i tell them this people don't want to be sold to People don't want something fake. People don't want something prepackaged or premeditated. They don't want something scripted. People are actually looking for that raw, vulnerable, like that sexual vulnerability. That's what they're really after. They're after that, like that piece of human experience that is undeniably real and honest. Mm-hmm. But you just don't get so many things today. Because of that, it actually doesn't even matter what you do. The more you try to please everyone in your room, the less you will succeed. Because that's like saying you go into a party or you make one kind of food. Like everyone has their own little thing that they're looking for. Everyone wants something different. You can't please everybody. Right. And the more you try, the less you will. So it doesn't actually matter what you're doing. It's that the viewers see how much you're enjoying doing it. Yeah. They want to see you lose yourself. They want to see, you know, the mystery behind the curtains. They want to see something new. They want to experience your sexuality. Mm-hmm. They don't want you to cater to theirs or what you think they want because that's boring. Yeah. And watching a performer try to please everyone in the room, that's not interesting. Right. So do things that you think are just the coolest. Like if you would watch it, if you would be your own fan, do it. The more unique, the more weird, the more you 
certain side yourself and just, you know, are just honest with yourself and do just whatever. It doesn't even matter. The craziest, most unique things. That's what's going to make you a successful performer. And not only that, that's what's going to make you love being a performer. That's how you're going to get the most out of this job. I really hate to see someone sit there like all clothed, like I'm not going to start my show until my room is full. Yeah. Or I'm not going to do anything until you pay me. Okay. Like again, it's logical why you would think that, but put yourself in the shoes of a viewer. Mm-hmm. Just like you don't want to be frauded, neither do they. They work really hard for that money. And they are tipping you as a thank you. Like they don't owe you a damn thing. So build that trust relationship. Be online consistently. Talk to them. I found that really good fans, like you built like a cam friendship. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just really great viewers and their fans and you just like you just you love them they're just so dear to you sure um, yeah. they almost tip me for flashes just like being cheeky and then like oh they tip and be like show me your boobs okay okay no show me your <laughs> pussy okay no show me your ass but it's almost like a really cheeky fun kind of thing yeah more than just using tips for flashes to make an overall show goal and that's what you should be aiming for So what I hear you saying, and I think this is fairly interesting, I hadn't really thought about this much like this in relationship to camming, but that the way in which a lot of people think about camming is that you're getting paid for particular things. And you think that we ought to reimagine what that payment is for. And it's not that they're paying you for a particular thing, but that they're showing you appreciation in some way. I mean, is that fair to say? Yeah. Again, I I hope you don't mind. I use a lot of analogies. Sure. I, just, <laughs> I like analogies. Like, yes. <laughs> I am a total teacher. Kind of liken it to the radio. You can turn on the radio. The radio is free. And you hear the biggest, most celebrated, richest celebrity singers in the world. And you yeah. can hear it all along for free. You can hear it on the internet. You can hear whatever. But the ones that you like, you're going to go to their concert. Mm-hmm. You're going to go buy their perfume. You're going to go get their t-shirt. You're back in the day when CDs were around, you go buy their CD. So it's the radio's free. Beyonce sings regardless if I turn the radio on or not. Yeah. But because I love her, like that is like I want to go see her live. I want to go and be a fan of hers. I want to pay appreciation as a fan of hers and just show my love because I love what she does so much. Yeah. So so what you're suggesting then is that we ought to think about cam girls not as providing services, but as being performers. I think so. And and that a performance based model makes more sense. Or at least like a menu of services, like a menu of like concrete <laughs> like <they> sex acts <laughs> or something. Right. Yeah. yeah that that's yeah. not how we ought to think about. Uh, I don't want anyone to be like a body with a dildo. Right. You know, I I don't want anyone to just be a naked body that's like, okay, you're like some kind of sex robot. And I'm also not saying you should just do everything for free and hope that someone tips you. That's not what I'm saying either. Yeah. I'm saying express yourself. You have to cam for you because if you are bored, everybody else is bored. Yeah. If you, it's just like anything in life, a singer, a painter, if you don't like the art, the craft that you are performing or doing, it's not going to be enticing it's not going to be interesting and no one's going to want to be a part of it regardless of anything yeah even if it's technically great even like you could be the hottest person in the world but if your heart's not into it and you're just like take me if you want to see something like that also makes it that takes it to a dirty place almost yeah and that's 
a dirty place for the viewers. Like, guys don't want to jerk off to a tragedy. You know, like they <laughs> want to be a part of something fun. Yeah. And yeah. you need to cam for you and you need to just be open and enjoy expressing this and enjoy performing and enjoy doing all these things. And yeah, of course, you're going to enjoy making money because that's also part of what makes it enjoyable. But the more fun you're having, it's like that. It's like that old adage, do what you love and the money comes after or the money will follow. Right. Yeah. It's the same thing. Like the recipe hasn't changed. Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you're saying about uh, thinking of camp performances as performances. But I wonder, what do you think motivates the viewers to tip in a model where they don't actually have to? You know what? Personality. The money that is advertised like, oh, make $10 billion a day, blah, blah, blah. That does happen. But that happens to models that work their asses off being themselves. Because it's actually scary to be yourself. Yeah. At first, because then all of a sudden you're looking in this mirror and it's it's scary to get the answers to the questions. Am I sexy? Am yeah. I interested? Are they going to like me? Am I boring? I'm going to tell you, spoiler alert, you are sexy. You are interesting. You are fun. As long as you're being honest with yourself and honest in your performances. Yeah. And even shy. Oh, my goodness. Nervous performers are the most fun to watch because you can't. <laughs> I think it's the most honest thing. So I think we need to stop thinking about watching sex. Yes, sex is always there. Like, that's just a no-brainer. That's People want to see, again, that vulnerability. They want to see that human element because it is so powerful. It's scary to look in the mirror that first time. Yeah. But I guarantee you the reason why every single cam performer, doesn't matter who they are, says camming is so empowering is because you've actually looked in that mirror and you've gotten those answers and every single answer was positive. Yeah, I really relate to what you're saying. I I do more phone sex than I do camming, but speaking really? of transferable skills, yeah. Um, really? I, yeah. What is your phone number? <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that I think is really interesting and in line with what you're saying is that when I first started that, people would when they asked me questions about whether I was like interested in what they were saying or not, you know, what whatever their particular kink or whatever they were talking about, if that was interesting to me. I remember at the very beginning thinking, how does he want me to answer? It's <laughs> so like, you know, trying to anticipate what he what he wants. And then I and then it struck me, you know, not even that long into it, three or four days into it, I don't actually know what they want. <laughs> and so I can't anticipate what it is that they want. I can only t- speak from a very honest place from where I am. And I can only answer from the person that I am and from the experiences that I've had. And that was so much more successful than trying to give somebody what they want, particularly since I don't know these people. very. I mean, I, be, I come to know them, but you start off as strangers and... So I think that everything that you're saying is right um, in terms of you have to be yourself and enjoy what you're doing. And people who are attracted to that will come to you. They'll be attracted to you as you are. And you can't just create like a persona that you think will be attractive to, you know, a particular group of people because you can't anticipate that. It's exhausting. You said something that was so perfect. Like you need to get out of my head right now because this is number two for you. <laughs> when someone maybe we're asked, like uh yeah maybe we're one maybe person we should call each other do a cam to cam yeah. what you're saying yeah, yeah maybe i'm picking up what you're that would be like awesome <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no 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 you can stay that's cool <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, even more fun okay so 
I'm sorry. Old habits. Um, so <laughs> when you were saying when you'd be talking to these gentlemen and they'd be asking you, are you interested in what I'm suggesting? Like, like, or, yeah. Suggest- and that also rings so true for cam models because again, those people haven't looked in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And I remind cam models all the time that not everyone who comes in your room are masters of conversation. So don't demand it of them. Yeah. Hmm. And when I give them options to find out what they want, instead of saying, Oh, what do you want, baby? Like what kind of show do you want? Number one, that puts them on the spot because of that insecurity, because to the, to them, a cam model, I don't care if it's your first day, you are the bravest person on earth to them. Like yeah. are on the internet and they feel like anything that they say would be so lame and so boring. And then they ha- would have to look in the mirror. Am I interesting? Yeah. Am I and so that's what we end up doing to them. So why don't we just skip that whole thing and instead of saying that, just, you know, and you could even use this for phone sex. I tell them uh, when you go into a private show, you just say, hey, now that we're alone, what can I call you? Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, that's what I, I do that naturally. Like, what what words do you, what do you want to be called? And it, yeah. you can find out yeah. so much about what somebody yeah. wants and how they think about something just by listening to the sorts of words that they use to talk about what they want. Big time. Well, I'm, if they give you a username or don't say anything, that's just just a come show, a come show and go. Like, that's just, right. that's what that is. If they give you a, a real name, that person's looking for a little bit more of a connection. Yeah. Then you can, of course, use their name. Oh, Jim, you're such a pervert. Do you like that, Jim? <laughs> right? It's just such an ice pick. And then when they say... And they it's say, usually people who like yeah. want to use their real names, too, who are really excited if you use them. You know, they'll be like, oh, I'm so glad that you say Jeff over. Like, I want you to say... They want you to know that you know who they are. Yeah. Because, again, it's that connection. Mm-hmm. It's that someone, like, I feel special. I feel like I'm part of something. And just as a side note, to be perfectly honest, I don't want the tabooness of porn to ever end. I always want it to be there because as soon as we get rid of it, guess what? Boundaries are pushed and then we all just become more disgusting. (laughs) You know, like half of the titillation of it is that it is something naughty. It is something bad. I don't agree with like horrific slut shaming right yeah yeah no i mean i think what you were suggesting is that there there has to be some sort of boundaries around it for it to be successful for people to want to participate in it um because it does seem a little bit naughty but that that can't extend to shaming the performers or the people who work within the industry if anyone who spits on someone else for doing something brave or something that you yourself could not do can suck my butt (laughs) (laughs) that's gonna be the pull quote for uh (laughs) (laughs) for your interview right (laughs) if you don't have the balls to do it yourself just i don't know get a hobby or something yeah just let other people who do have that do their thing yeah just tip me (laughs) yeah Related to that idea of asking people what their name is, I know you've talked about, too, how you often will go on fantasy dates before you have fantasy sex, which (laughs) seemed really similar to me. And how I always ask what we're eating. Like, what are we going to eat on our dinner? Because I feel like if they say we're going to have filet mignon and red wine, that's going to create a totally different date atmosphere than if they say they want to have like buffalo wings and beer, right? And buffalo wings and beer are fun sometimes and filet and 
wine is fun sometimes, but it's a, they're asking for something different. I think. I'm actually going to write that down. That's a very good question. I mean, that's interesting because I, I think the point you're making that like people are so craving that kind of social connection that, that that's a major thing that cam models are providing. Odds work. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Within those shows. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's also interesting because it's also creating a situation um, and we have I think very few of these situations in our society where sex can be social as well. Yeah, I agree. When I did cam, one of the things that I thought was super interesting about camming was the way that men actually developed like camaraderies in the rooms. 100%. And would talk about like, oh, look at what's going on. Isn't that cool? Oh, she's really beautiful. And like... (laughs) having conversations with each other to the point that sometimes I was like, they could just like go on. I don't actually have to do anything. (laughs) This is about them chatting with each other and uh, talking about their wife or ex-wife or whatever, (laughs) whatever. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Because it makes them so comfortable in their own skin. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's almost as if like cam rooms are like safe spaces for men to interact but because there's sort of a cam model you know generally a a woman there mediating Mm -hmm. those interactions they can put some of their guard down women are we're so just naturally drawn to each other and we're so open about our sexuality yeah it's so easy to talk to other women about our intimate lives absolutely and it's that female intimacy is just kind of a given as we're with men it's not but Mm -hmm. camming just lets them explore it in a safe place. I was going to say that I think patriarchy and um, toxic masculinity is really traumatic for men, like in a different way than it's traumatic for women, but it's also very traumatic for men. And it seems to me like one of the things that happens in these spaces is that men can kind of work out some of their anxiety that they have about other men. I mean, as a female, I can only say so much. Yeah. I, I absolutely, I agree from what I see that, whole homophobia is like it's just kind of not there and you do see it sometimes some performers some male performers will come on and be like i want i only want to perform for women and i ask them i'm like is money gay (laughs) they're like well no i'm like do you really care yeah and they look well uh and i'm like you know what and that's fine if you do because then i don't think that this is a job for you yeah well yeah there's just not a not a critical mass of female viewers that's going to sustain. <laughs> See, I think women are definitely becoming more of the viewer population, but just I don't know if women really seek out um, that kind of entertainment just because a lot of pornography is horrible to watch. I mean, there's a lot of it that's awesome to watch, but it, right. it's just not something women are very sexualized anyway that I don't right. think they seek out that much. Yeah. So, Nikki, where can people find you? Well, people can stalk me. Um, <laughs> you can always find me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Nikki, N-I-K-K-I underscore N-I-G-H-T. On Instagram, I'm Nikki.cam4. You can also come and find me on Cam4. My coaching URL is uh, Cam4Coach, like C-A-M, the number four, coach, underscore en and en is for the english language i actually have Ah. coaching uh seven different languages and i have male specific coaches and get out to everybody yeah that's awesome (laughs) you have a little empire but it's sometimes it's not about the information some people times people are just more receptive 
based, like depending on where the information is coming from. So sure, we have mail coach, so we offer like just many different avenues that you can come and be a community with us and, you know, get some pro tips. Um, if you ever want to contact me and have questions, I'm sure I'm going to get a dick pic out of this. Uh, you can email me at Nikki at cam4.com and I KKI at cam4.com. All right. <laughs> no dick. Unless they're huge. Or there's money attached. Or there's money attached. <laughs> A dick pic along with an Amazon gift card. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Okay. We did too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. We really enjoyed putting this episode together for you all. We appreciate the time and energy of our two wonderful guests, Julian Gill-Peterson and Nikki Knight. You can find Julian on Twitter at G-P-J-U-L-I-A-N and Nikki on Twitter at Nikki underscore Knight. We are about to head to Las Vegas to cover AVN, so please make sure to look out for us on Twitter and Instagram for live coverage of events and other fun stuff. On Twitter, we are at Peep underscore cast, and on Instagram, we are at Peep Show underscore podcast. I'm Jesse Sage, and you can find me on Twitter at Textual. I'm PJ Sage, and you can find me at Peach Sage. We would like to remind you that we do have a Patreon account and would appreciate your support. We need it to keep the podcast running, to pay for our website and services that host and distribute our podcast. Please consider visiting our Patreon and contributing. If only a dollar a month, every little bit helps. Also, there are non-monetary ways that you can support us. If you listen on iTunes or SoundCloud, please leave us five-star ratings and positive reviews. Thanks to Joe Kennedy for the music. The show was produced by Jesse and PJ Sage. Signing off, have a great week.